0: So, Bob, I have a lot of emails waiting for us to read on the air and for us to respond to. There's a lot of clinical things. There's a lot of things that are addressed to specifically you and me. Mm-hmm. Let's get into it. What do you say, Bob?
1: Yeah. H- how many do you have?
0: Well, geez, uh, dozens, I think. <laughs> we get through a couple, three, four, maybe sometimes. Sometimes just one. That's, you know, you know a, a, I crazy. feel terrible if we weren't worth the wait. <laughs> This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob?
1: Um, I'm also a therapist here in practice in Seattle and a good friend of yours. Yeah, yeah.
0: So I want to actually try to get through as many emails as possible. So let's all right. Let's, let's let's try and I mean, essentially, that's just me reminding myself not to be too much of a windbag. <laughs> so upper tier patron asks a very timely question. I've been meeting with my therapist in person without masks for a few months now. I recently found out that my therapist isn't being diligent about social distancing. I don't know what to do. He mentioned offhand a few weeks ago that he would be out a few days coming up, and it was only later when I specifically asked that I learned he had traveled. I'm also in the same social circle as one of his adult children. And saw a photo on social media of their family together, including my friend who had just flown cross-country for a completely unsocially distanced bachelor party weekend with a dozen other guys at a lake house. My therapist and I both signed a consent form when we returned to in-person services. One of the conditions was that we'd both limit our exposure as much as possible outside the office. Yet he did not inform me that he was engaged in these And who knows uh, what other high-risk activities he's been up to. Is this unethical? Has he committed an ethical violation? What on earth am I supposed to do? I hate telehealth, but I don't feel I have the right to tell him how to live his life. But but his putting me at greater risk has also damaged our relationship, and I don't know if I can trust him
1: anymore. Bob, you're nodding your head. What do you think? I'm thinking that that is exactly the issue. Is can I trust you? Do, am I safe with you? And you have this person has reason to have some doubt or some nerves. Who wouldn't? Right? I would. Um, I don't know about the ethics because, um, uh, and I don't even want to get into that part. Not because it isn't important, but because I don't know how to comment about it. What 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 struck me in what you wrote was. I don't want to tell him how to live his life. You're not. You wouldn't. No, of course you don't. You wouldn't dare to do that. That's impolite, right? But what you're telling him is about how you want to live your life. And you want it to be safe. And in order for it to be safe, you um, need something from him. And um, he, he's not holding up his end so far. It is It is very hard to talk to therapists about therapy. It, and I probably say this every time we get together it's okay to do it. Good therapists are used to it. They respond to it. They don't necessarily like it because who would like it? Who would like getting that kind of feedback? Nobody, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And that doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And I suspect that the point of good therapy, well, one point of good therapy, isn't that you guys have a smooth sailing relationship. It's How do you survive the bumps together? Because when you go through that white water together, you go through those bumps together and you come out the other side, you've got something that you couldn't ever get if you never got into it. So I urge you to bring it up as candidly as you can. And good luck.
0: Yeah. I couldn't say any better myself to add on a little bit.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. All therapists are terrified of being realized as the fraud that they all think that they are. So (laughs) bringing up you know questions about their behavior in therapy is always going to be a unsafe space for therapists but i will say that good therapists mm-hmm. bob and i included if i might say so will love this opportunity when when i have clients say mm-hmm. things like this to me i immediately recognize it for what it is which is this client has been thinking about this for a while
2: mm-hmm.
0: they trust me st- enough to say it right now, mm-hmm. I now have the glorious opportunity to prove my worth to this client. Mm-hmm. Nothing proves a therapist's worth more than the ability to not be defensive, to mm-hmm. listen well, and to apologize, mm-hmm. and to repair whatever happened. Mm-hmm. And I consider it such a Oh, I've been through it so many times, and so has Bob. Mm-hmm. That when this opportunity arises, client generated, I'm like they're doing the work for me. I because I you know usually I'm the one having to you know sort of facilitate things. The client has now l- just lobbed the uh, you know uh, a a 65 mile an hour softball over the over the plate, and all mm-hmm. I got to do is swing at it, and I'm going to mm-hmm. hit it. You know, base mm-hmm. hit. So you know, I. Uh, So if your therapist is any good, in all likelihood, they'll react well. Mm -hmm. Now, to answer your question, is it unethical? It's hard to know because we don't really have a standard of care yet regarding this. You did sign a consent uh, form regarding in-person services. And one of the conditions, as you say, is that you're both going to limit your exposure. What does that mean? You know, how limited did the therapist uh, think that that meant? It's hard to know. We don't have a standard of care yet regarding this. I'm guessing we will over the next 10 or 20 years, because this isn't the first, this isn't the last pandemic we're going to have as a society, unfortunately. Uh, But the central feature when we're evaluating ethics is, is it harming treatment or harming you? And it sounds like it is harming treatment because you say that it's damaged your relationship and you don't know if you can trust him at all anymore. So yeah, if if that happened, then that's potentially unethical. But again, it's hard to know what he meant when he, you know, had that condition of the of the consent form signed. If he knowingly went against it and knowingly did something that would knowingly or predictably harm his relationship with you, then yeah, cons- that's considered unethical. But What does that mean when something's unethical? There's a lot of things that are unethical that I would say are unethical that aren't like reasons to have your license revoked or or that sort of thing. So in the broad sense, yes, but is it in the narrow sense of having your license revoked or a reason to complain to the state, that's up to you. Um, You also ask another question, what what on earth am I supposed to do? And as Bob says, talk about it for sure, treatment depends on you trusting him, and he needs to apologize sufficiently, at the very least for a misunderstanding on the consent form, and at the most, apologizing for putting your life in danger. <laughs> um, beyond that, here are your options. You can continue with in-person ses- sessions and just sort of say, well, it's, you know, I don't like telehealth, so – and if you can repair the relationship – It's worth it to me to take the risk, and that's just how it's going to be. Maybe I'll ask that he please try to be more careful, this kind of thing. But, you know, you just don't know because, like you said in the email, you've only seen the tip of the iceberg, probably, of what he's been doing socially. The other option, which is what I would do, is switch to phone or video sessions. I am a billion percent social distancing still because – if I was social distancing in April and May, today in September there is no difference. There is no difference in my risk of being infected, there's no dif- there's no difference in me being a vector to other people who are at higher risk, but honestly, you know, Bob and I were, you know, around 50 years old, we're we're starting to get into that risk uh category. So uh that's what i would do and that's what i do with everything i i'm i'm reticent about even meeting up with people i i've met up with only a few people in person bob being one of them and some of my friends are upset they you know they feel hurt that cuz they don't have those kinds of worries or whatever and And so I'm not meeting up with very many people because, frankly, I don't trust anyone. (laughs) I mean, I'll I'll hear someone and they'll say like, oh, yeah, I've been totally social distancing. There's not a chance that I've and then I'll I'll see a picture on Facebook or I'll hear them refer to something. And I'll be like, you just hung out in a small room for an hour with that person, even with masks that that does, you know, that there's still a risk. And that person you hung out with. Neither one of us have any idea what that person was doing. So uh, that's just me. And everyone is obviously entitled to, you know, figure out what they want to do. But the reason I want to remind everyone why we're on lockdown, because I feel like we've lost it in the political back and forth. The the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, is lethal to a lot of people. And for many people, it has long term consequences for those that it doesn't kill. So, what we're trying to do is one, we're trying to prevent deaths by reducing the virus being passed around. Two, we're trying to avoid a massive, uh, you know, exponential um, infection rate that results in not having enough hospital beds. We've We've managed to flatten the curve. Remember that whole thing? We've managed to do that. That's great. But we don't want to take our chances with raising the curve and and getting to a place where there's too many people to be treated. But that's only part of the issue because even with treatment, people are dying. And even with recovery, people are having seemingly long-term consequences. We are heading into the fall and winter of late 2020. And like the pandemic, 100 years ago, there is most certainly going to be another wave. As people are driven inside, infection rates tend to tend to increase as as the time since the fear uh, passes and people are more relaxed. So come December, January, I predict there's there's going to be 10s of 1000s of people dying every month. And Mm. thousands of other people having long-term respiratory problems. There's even potential brain problems. Anyway, the point is is that this is going to happen in all likelihood because I don't see any chance of it not happening given the way that our country is dealing with this. Even if there's a change in administration, I just don't see the American public actually – doing what they're supposed to do, at least in terms of what other countries are doing. Now, I know there's a lot of debate about, you know, do masks do this? Do masks do that? Okay, you know, I'm not a biologist. I'm not an epidemiologist, but I know enough to know (laughs) that people are dying. And, yeah, you could say, like, well, you know, every year there's people who die from various different infections, flu included, There are so many people that have died from from this virus. Something like we've lost, I mean, how many people died in the Vietnam War? Like far fewer than than the amount of people who have died from COVID. So whatever sort of national emergency or concern the Vietnam conflict was for us in the United States, the coronavirus should be more than that. (laughs) Anyway... So, this is just me ranting about uh you know coronavirus stuff, but the point is is getting back to your question upper tier uh patron anonymous is that I get your concerns, mm-hmm. you have every reason to be upset, you have every reason to talk about it, you deserve a non defensive explanation, an apology, and if you if you don't feel very good about the response, either s- again switch to phone or video because that's just the only option for a lot of situations. Or I don't know, switch to another therapist if you find that you just can't repair this relationship. Bob, am, any
1: thoughts about coronavirus stuff? I agree with everything you're saying. Um, um, we're trying to create. We're trying to prevent becoming vectors. Oh. Yeah, and we're trying to prevent dying ourselves. Well, right, yeah, yeah. So um, there has been kind of a a pretty probably predictable um, return to a degree of laziness about stuff. I'd say, you know, um, as a as a big group in this country, we've sort of slid back. Um, but it's essential that we not do that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the thing that I'm sure people know this, but if you don't, there are countries that had the same infection rate that we had earlier. And they did as a society what they needed to do to eliminate the virus from their population such that their lives have returned to normal. They can do whatever they want now. They can go to restaurants. They can hug people. They can go to in-person therapy. They can do whatever they want because they, as a society, did what they needed to do to eliminate the virus from their population. They locked down. They complied. They did tracking. They did testing. They did PPE. They did all the things that experts say are – and why do we need to politicize that? There's nothing political about science. By the way, and it's and so if there's ever been an experiment on how governments and how societies deal with things and the the pros and the cons, it's clear the United States political and and the society is such that we still have the virus raging through our population right now, other countries uh you know even China. <laughs> did what they were supposed to do. New Zealand, I think is one another mm-hmm. one New Zealand where they did everything they're supposed to do. They followed the recommendations and there were uh, the, the percentage of I'm just going to call them idiots were <laughs> was small enough that it didn't cause a problem. Mm-hmm. And so we are the product of our own stupidity. This problem is the product of our own society and our own approach to science, our own approach to individuality, our own own approach to freedom. How free do we feel right now? I don't feel free. I don't Mm -hmm. feel free at all. I feel completely unfree. Why? Because our society values freedom too much. (laughs) It's like (laughs) mind boggling. Why am I talking? Why did I am I just bringing up something pessimistic for no reason?
1: It's a tangent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Upper tier patron, <laughs> anonymous, anonymous person says, can you please talk about dating with mental health issues? Bob, what do you think? You know, you have mental health issues uh-huh. and you're you're you want to date. The person wrote a longer email about how. They were worried about it and they don't think it's going to work or, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of thing. What do you think?
1: Well, mental health issues is a pretty general term, so it sort of depends on what I mean, so uh, what a person means by that. Colleen and I were talking about this the other day. We were driving home from somewhere and... Um, you know there's that whole thing in american culture is like i've got to be okay with me first before i'm okay with somebody else or i've got to fix me before i get in a relationship with somebody else and we were both sort of chuckling about that because what we what we realized about ourselves as a result of being together is that there was no hell no way in hell we were ever going to be prepared for the way it actually is um as a as a couple and that being a couple is the thing that has prepared us as far as we are prepared now. That's funny. Cause uh,
0: just recently yeah. I have had the same realization. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a common trope and, and it's nothing. there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying, love yourself before you, you can be loved. It's a common thing that people will say. Sure. It is. But uh, it, it's sort of, if, if taken too literally or too rigidly, basically yeah. the message is, You can't be loved or you can't have a successful relationship with other people until you love yourself. And this is a very, shall I say, American idea, which is you need to be independent before you can establish good relationships. But that doesn't make any sense. It's backwards. In order to love yourself, you have to have good relationships. So it's kind of a catch-22 in a certain way. And you can do both. You do both at the same time. You love yourself by being loved. And as you love yourself, you can allow yourself to be loved more. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's both things. But yeah. but anyway, but what about, like, someone that's saying, well, I have PTSD, mm-hmm. I have social anxiety, mm-hmm. I have borderline personality disorder, mm-hmm. and I want to start dating again. You know, how do I do that, given that I have these issues?
1: Well, it's going to be a factor. There's probably no getting out of that, but to the degree that these things are going to be triggered by being in – Contact or connection with somebody else—they are indeed going to come up. And if you're going to make an ama, you're going to have to break some eggs. We had a we had a student in our DBT class. I just love this lady. She was so cool at the beginning. She's like, "There's no way in hell I'm getting involved with another person. I just came out of one of those, and it sucked. And there's no way in hell." And by the end of her year, about ten months into her year, she's getting ready to graduate, and she's going on blind dates, like people that she's meeting. And we all, we had, the, we had the funnest moment. We were like, can we come with you? Maybe we could sit at another table. You're meeting in public. We could sit at another table and we could kind of check him out and see if he's a good person for you. Like the group really <laughs> adopted her. And she was tickled and scared and thrilled and yearning the way anybody would be. You know, social anxiety, BPD, whatever you have. You want connection. You want contact. And you're probably not going to get through it without those things being triggered. And the only way you're ever going to learn, I think, um, how to deal with those in a relationship is to learn how to deal with those in a relationship. There's no guarantee that they won't be outside somebody else's limits. Somebody else might say, you know what? This doesn't fit for me, or this is more than I bargained for, or I don't feel the way I want to feel in a relationship. And, you know, maybe those factors have something to do with it, but that could happen anyways. So I say, go for it. You're going to get bruised. That's okay. Okay. Pick yourself up and keep going.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, sort of piggybacking on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have three points. Number one is dating is tough for everyone. Yeah. So just the f- fact that you have, quote, unquote, mental health issues doesn't doesn't mean you're the only people that have <laughs> uh, problems mm. with dating. Number two is everyone has mental health issues. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, officially, according to research, 50% of Americans will qualify for a DSM diagnosis at some point during their lifetime, uh, many of whom will qualify for several. Mm-hmm. And this seems a little low, actually, to me, mm-hmm. uh, because the longer I live the and the more people I come into contact with, the more I am uh, – the more I realize that everyone I know – I can't name a single person that I know that doesn't have – some significant attachment issue, uh, personality disorder, uh, spectrum, anxiety, depression, grief, complicated grief, you know, there, there's something going on for everyone, if not multiple sorts of things. Now, whether or not they rise to the threshold of a DSM diagnosis, mm-hmm. you know you could make you could make a, you could debate about that. Mm-hmm. But everyone has triggers. Everyone is grieving something from their past, especially mm-hmm. if they're old enough. Everyone is in the mm. process of healing. The difference is, anonymous patron, is that you're aware of it, mm. <laughs> so you, you you're ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the third thing is, is talk with a therapist. As Bob was saying, he was you know a group therapy or a DBT class, oh, as he sure. calls it. Mm-hmm. Some people would call that actual group therapy. I mean, do the people in the class do they might they say to their friends, "I'm going to group therapy," or do they say, "I'm going to a DBT class"?
1: Well, if they listen to me long enough, they say they're going to a class.
0: Okay. But, but they, they make
1: but, they might enter in thinking this is group therapy because it, you know, it sort of looks like that.
0: But it certainly if someone were to watch it, they might think, well, you have a, you know, licensed counselor, mm-hmm. and, and you have a bunch of people talking mm-hmm. about skills, but they're also mm-hmm. talking about their own lives mm-hmm. at, at times. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. might say, "Looks like group therapy to me."
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah. This they is might. just a, a a distinction that you just want to focus people on. Look, we're we're not here to go too mm-hmm. far into your personal lives. Mm-hmm. We're here to really teach skills and to mm-hmm. practice those skills. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so Bob is talking about how you know the per, the student slash client mm-hmm. that he was talking to uh, was in therapy and it really helped to process the mm-hmm. feelings of of resistance to dating or mm-hmm. debating whether or not it's a good idea and then the support and all there's a lot of grist for the mill uh, regarding dating um, I have I've talked with many many clients about this sort of thing um, so there's that the other thing I'll say is that for this is advice for everyone is dating is rough usually and you want to lower your expectations it takes time the thing that I always say to people is it's a numbers game meaning that you are i know it's not very romantic but given online dating i think it kind of lends itself to this is mm-hmm. your one is out there or mm-hmm. one of your ones is out there mm, good sentence and it's a matter of how, what's the likelihood that the first person you date is going to be one of those ones What's the person that the second person you date is going to be one of those ones? Mm -hmm. What's the chance that the first person you think, huh, maybe this is one of my ones, what's the chance that person is one of your ones? Mm -hmm. Not very high. Mm -hmm. So if you want to meet one of your ones, then you have to, say, try out 20, 30, 500 different people before you find one of your ones, mm-hmm. and that's just the process mm-hmm. so lowering one's expectations, meaning that y- you know i'll I'll give this person a, a try and I'm mm-hmm. optimistic and i'm going to mm-hmm. see the chance of this person being one of my ones is extremely mm-hmm. small, but it's a it's a numbers game, so if i'm going to meet one of my ones i gotta but you know in terms of statistics, it could be the first person I meet or it could be the hundred and first person I meet mm-hmm. and I'm dedicated to that process, and I'm okay with it. Also, the other thing I tell people is have fun with it. Mm -hmm. it, it, Let's say there's a 1% chance that the next Tinder date you go on is one of your ones. Well, it's not, you know, just accept that and have fun. You Mm -hmm. know, get to know someone. Uh, The other thing I'll say is rejection happens in both directions with this sort of thing. People have this, you know, there's no... Romantic comedies where people go on 101 dates and we sort of watch the whole process and the pain that people go through, you know, Uh, you're either going to reject. So if it's a 1% chance or let's say 5%, let's be a little optimistic. So the next Tinder date you go on, 1 in 20 chance, you're going to dump them or they're going to dump you or you're going to dump each other. Mm -hmm. One of you is going to either ghost each other or say, not for me. Or you're just not going to call them back or text them back, or you're going to explicitly say, "I don't think this is going to work." There's a one in twenty chance that this is that this is going to work out. There's a nineteen in twenty chance that uh, someone's going to reject someone, and just accept that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it'll be you doing the rejecting, rejecting. Maybe it'll be them rejecting you. That's okay. That's mm-hmm. just that. That's it's a numbers game. It's mm-hmm. not like a rom com where. You have a meet-cute at the grocery store and you fall in love and, and you have, you know, that point in the story where you have a very mild fight and you break up for a day and then the person meets you in the airport and you live happily ever after. Uh, life doesn't work that way. It's much messier than that. And mental health issues are not, you know, that's, that's usually the way it plays out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway. Uh, Bob, you dated a lot of people,
1: right? I don't know if you remember this, but (laughs) before me and Colleen got together, you and I were sitting around having a beer and we, we were sort of contemplating my dating life over the previous five years. And we concluded that I dated about 2% of the population in a pretty large city, (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah because uh well i think two percent maybe it was two percent of the available the
1: available people in my sort of age whatever and um yeah
0: yeah married or not uh-huh. uh, heterosexual or not we right we yeah we did this i, I remember because you had been on 300 oh 500 probably. 500 match.com it was match.com uh, match.com and yeah we, we we i was like okay What's the you know how many women live mm-hmm. in Seattle? Mm-hmm. How many uh, of them are in our age group? Mm-hmm. And then we figured out, yeah, you dated two or three yeah. percent of, of those people, <laughs> and I that doesn't kind of include all the people who, again who are who aren't heterosexual, uh-huh. who uh-huh. who are married with kids already, you know, this kind yeah. of thing,
1: right? Yeah, you know, so. my favorite rejection from back then, this woman, I I went out with her twice. And then I invited her out for a third date. I don't know if we were a mix or not, whatever. But she she wrote me back and she said, you know, I don't feel the way I want to feel in a relationship when I'm with you. And I wrote back to her and I'm like, you know, I really appreciate that. Because it makes sense that you want to feel some way in a relationship and you're not feeling it with me. And I just thought that was such a lovely way to let me down. Yeah. I really dig it. Yeah. And so, I don't know why. Because often
0: we will feel that way but then we will latch on to something like mm-hmm. your hands are too big or something like that
2: mm-hmm.
0: um or something more hurtful <laughs> yeah uh, and and so that's much more um to the core of the issue yeah. of just like you know I just this doesn't feel right to me yeah yeah so for you it was a numbers game you yeah. you dated 500 people before you met Colleen yeah. and If you had given up at 100 or at Mm 5, which I find a lot of people doing, they'll Mm -hmm. go on three different Tinder dates and they'll Mm -hmm. just be like, I give up. And I'm like, it's a numbers game. What did you think was going to happen? Why do you have this expectation that you're going to meet one of your ones and Mm -hmm. they're going to feel like you're one of the ones Mm -hmm. uh, within such a short short amount of time? The other thing is is you have to trudge through, and you did – Bob Mm. uh, some six month relationships before you find out it's not going to work. And then you get back on mash.com. So, you know, I get it. It's demoralizing on some Mm -hmm. level, but if you're dedicated to it, which I Mm -hmm. recommend people are, you just lower your expectations and, Mm -hmm. you know, you just say, well, you know, and you enjoy it for what it is. That's what I always tell people is, okay, you're dating. You know, not everyone does this, but a lot of people are dating to meet one of their ones. And I say, well, Like I said, 19 out of 20, it's going to be – it's not going to last forever. Mm -hmm. So enjoy it for what it is. Say say it's just one coffee date for an hour, and within two minutes you realize, nope, not the one. Well, spend an hour talking about whatever, or Mm -hmm. maybe they're going to be a friend, or Mm -hmm. maybe they know how to do a skill that you want to learn, and you Mm -hmm. can learn it in an hour. or. Uh, you know, maybe they know like password security on the Internet and you can pick their brain about that for a second or you mm-hmm. can just compliment each other on something.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What a wonderful opportunity, you know, to meet someone and have a nice little moment. And, um, you know, your heart is pitter pattering as you're heading there and, you know, it gets the blood going. It's something to look forward to. And mm-hmm. so but I find that people, some people, they, they just get so disheartened. By it not being the one, mm-hmm. so Bob, for you, five hundred times or four hundred ninety nine times, it, it wasn't the one. It how wasn't did, the one. How did you? How All did one. you cope with that emotionally?
1: Oh, you know, I'd sort of go in and out. There'd be there'd be periods where I was like, eh, I'm kind of tired of dating for a while. Um, and but then did you I, ever become just
0: completely demoralized for the whole thing? No. How did no. you not?
1: I, well, I've been single most of my life. Um, before I met Colleen. So I'm used to being single. I don't mind being signal. I never felt like a fifth wheel or third wheel with any of my friends. Cause most of my friends are couples. And I always just felt like, you know, um, I, I'm, I enjoy these parts of my life and, you know, it's career and, you know, um, learning about that and growing that or whatever is a pretty big commitment and diversion. So, um, I don't so recall. you weren't desperate to couple, no. and you
0: had other things in your life. Yeah, but I also think that you're just a nice, extroverted-ish person who likes to meet people. I, I, my, I don't, I wasn't there on, when yeah. you're on those dates, but I could well, see, I could see most you, of them. <laughs> I could see you being like that attitude of like, well, I don't think this is going to work, but yeah. you know, it was nice to meet this person.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it was. I, I met a lot of people. And, you know, a lot of lemon dates, too. Like, I met people that I didn't like, you know, and I met people who didn't like me. And what are you going to do? It's, you know what, as much as I might want to go into it with the idea that I'm going to just make the most of it, it's okay if it hurts a little, too. Yeah. That's real. So if I feel anxious because I don't like this person and I feel kind of stuck because I don't want to be rude and say in the first two minutes to get up, then maybe part of the experience is how I work with my anxiety. Because it doesn't have to be calm. Um, I think I owe the person dignity and respect, but I don't owe them a particular feeling, and I don't owe them any kind of commitment beyond dignity and respect during this time that we're together. Um, so, um, and I might be able to tell that hey, they're not really into me, and that this is going to unfold the way it's going to unfold, and that might be that would make me feel uncomfortable. It has made me feel uncomfortable. That's okay. It doesn't have to feel good in order to be okay to stay in and be yeah. decent and kind and, um, you know, um, respectful. I, I I do believe that we owe one another that.
0: Yeah, that's wise for a lot of aspects of life Yeah, of just accepting that there's going to be some pain, some discomfort, some suffering, yep. mm-hmm. instead of trying to avoid that. hmm and then
1: not succeeding and then
0: giving yeah. up, you know?
1: That's a good sentence right there. If we try to avoid it and we don't succeed, it could lead us to discouragement and giving up. Right. But got to make an omelet.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm taking care of my neighbor's chickens, and speaking of yeah. omelets, we have way too many eggs in my fridge now. Ooh. Uh, and eggs directly from a chicken taste better. They're I- better. Yeah. They're Uh like, um, they have more kind of substance to it, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Didn't John Gottman, the, for those listening, researcher, like perhaps the most renowned, most successful, most prolific researcher in couples therapy. uh, He, didn't he say he went on like
1: 300 blind dates before he met Julie? I don't know. I do know Albert Ellis was scared to death of women. And so what he did is every day during a summer, he's from New York City, so he'd go out, walk into Central Park, and go up to an attractive woman that he had never seen before, complete and total stranger, and ask her to lunch. And what he said is at the beginning he was terrified, and at the end it was like he was used to being rejected, and every single one of them turned him down. Didn't get one yes for lunch, which, you know, is what you'd expect. The point wasn't to get a lunch date. The point was to teach his brain that he could survive rejection.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. And Mm -hmm. I find it to be a little problematic because it's like how many of those women are just like, "Um, okay, pal, like I'm just trying to walk to work here, you know?
1: Yeah, it's 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 invasive. Yeah, I mean, there's
0: there's just a little bit of sexism in there. But anyway, I'm going to have a coughing fit. So let's take a break. What do you say, Bob? I say yes. So, Bob, we are definitely not rocketing through on the pace that I was hoping we would rocket through. We got three. Uh, Was it three or two? It was two. We got through two. (laughs) So (laughs) we have dozens more to go through. All right. Next one here. Anonymous patron writes, my brother was wildly abusive to me and my mother and my mother protected him at all costs, and I was taken out of the home for my own safety. My own? I was removed from the home at 13 and sent to a residential treatment center. My mother surrendered, surrendered custody of me, and I became a ward of the state. However, I've been through a lot of healing, and I'm in a good place now. I'm married to a wonderful, supportive man, and I've made peace with my family. However, many kids, including me, were abused at the treatment center, and now the trauma still affects me. So therapy and treatment was the source of much of my current trauma. I'm having a hard time going to therapy as a result. Mm -hmm. I have a rather irrational fear that I will be locked away if I open up to a therapist. Mm -hmm. And when I think about going to a therapist, I get paralyzed with fear. Mm -hmm. I am generally happy and functional but suffer from some PTSD symptoms and depression. What should I do? how do therapists approach people who have been traumatized or abused by therapeutic centers or psychiatric hospitals? I'm worried that, that they will be skeptical of my story or side with the treatment center. And if I get myself to an appointment, how should I address this with the therapist? Bob, what do you think?
1: Um, I think my first thought is I'm so sorry. It sounds like it's been, that sounds awful. Um, you're, supposed to be able to trust when you go to one of these places that you're going to be cared for and i imagine the experience though is all too common your fear makes all the sense in the universe i mean who wouldn't be afraid um uh there was a part in that that really caught my ear though uh uh can you reread it um i'll fly get the part where that caught my ear
0: uh well the latter part of the beginning part somewhere in the middle yeah, uh, therapy was the source of trauma. I'm having a hard time going to therapy. I have an right. irrational fear of being locked up.
1: Oh, got it. So do do you have... If you can avoid the things that cause anxiety, it's okay to avoid them. So, for instance, I'm afraid of heights, and I don't mean to be glib here or trite, um, but fear is fear as far as your nervous system is concerned. I can live a perfectly happy life and avoid high places... of the time. And it's fine, right? And so I can sort of gut it out in those rare events when I have to be looking down, like crossing a bridge or something like that. But so, but my life can go okay. And what you're saying is you're married to a wonderful man and that in general you're feeling really good. Do you have some goal that therapy would help you with and so is therefore necessary? So for instance, if one of my goals was to become a rock climber, then I would have to expose to my fear of heights in order to have any success with that. But it would, I would only do that because I have an important goal that needs reaching, that I want to reach, right? And I want to learn how to climb rocks, which I would never do, but nonetheless. If I don't want to climb rocks, then why not just avoid high places altogether? And if, so if you don't need therapy, it's okay to be afraid of therapy. Is, so are your troubles impinging on your well-being and your welfare? Or do you have some goal... First off, are there cues that you just run into in everyday life that lead to, that trigger the fear? That's one question. The second question is, do you have a therapy goal outside of the fact that you have um, PTSD for this awful crap you went through? If you don't, skip it. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. Uh, and, then, and then the other thought I had is, I would treat this the way I would treat any fear. And the way I would do that is I would be considering... What are the many, there, there'll be many, many triggers for the fear. And they could be things like picking up the phone to call a therapist. And they could be things like sending an email to a therapist. And it could be sitting in a room with a therapist with nobody around, right? You, 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 there's, there are dozens of triggers. And what I would do when I'm treating this sort of thing is I break it down into a list. I actually literally ask my clients to write a list of all the things about it that scare them. And rate, how scary. Sitting in a room with a therapist might be a 9 out of 10. In terms of 10 is like completely panicked, you know, overwhelmed with panic. And zero would be completely calm. So sitting in a room with a therapist might be a 9 or a 10. Picking up the phone to call a therapist might be a 3 or a 4. That's where I would start, is that stuff in the middle. There are good behavioral therapists out there that understand that um, the body has these anxious responses and are going to be interested in accommodating your fear and working with it and it actually would be kind of an interesting case. you know how do I help somebody when that my presence is the cue that kicks off the fear mm-hmm. there 's no getting around the fact that at least at the initial stage of this this is going to be sort of like us you know bumping into one another, and I might scare my client inadvertently because we hit some cue or some trigger that sets it off, and you know. But if we're both willing, why not? And I, I know there probably are therapists out there that would have disbelief. Those are the ones you just skip. Just you, you'd, you'd want to assess that at the beginning. So, like with therapists, if you, people shop for a car with more care than they shop for a therapist, <laughs> like you test drive a car, you don't just buy it off the lot. I encourage people that call me. I say, you know, look, people don't shop enough for therapists. So I offer thirty minutes to consult. And we get to kind of see what it's like to be together and you get to interview me and find out, you know, kind of how I am. And I don't charge for that because I want people to do that. And I don't think that we as a group do that enough. So if I were this person and I were going to seek treatment because um, I was getting too damn triggered as I run my life or because I had some goal that I needed therapy to use, I needed to use therapy to get to. And so therefore I've got to get over my fear of therapy so I can reach the other goal. If I was in one of those two situations, I would kick the tires on a lot of them. And I mm. would probably seek somebody who had a, a behaviorist, uh, uh, a behavioral approach, um, maybe cognitive processing, but I'm kind of, I got to think I got a bias there. I'd be more in favor of using prolonged exposure as a treatment for this kind of um, fear. Which does not mean jump into the deep end of the pool. It does mean do it in a gradual, mindful way that doesn't, um, you know, scare the crap out of anybody. Um, Those are my thoughts.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, Cognitive processing is great, but it's too short term, I think, for a lot of people. Mm. And also is heavily homework oriented, which isn't so great for some people. Mm. And I, I don't think it has enough... Uh, appreciation for how entrenched trauma can be mm-hmm. um, whereas prolonged exposure is so much more general and you know there's there's not really a treatment protocol to prolong there's no like manualized Or people with that use prolonged exposure tend not to do a manualized short-term model they're just like well okay let's assess and let's you know let's go through the steps and mm-hmm. when you've habituated it then you're done. There's mm-hmm. you no know, like 10-week protocol kind of a thing. Oh, right, right. Um, now, some people use cognitive processing in a flexible way, which is great. And it can work, which is absolutely true. But I just find that uh, with you know prolonged exposure with some of the elements of, of EMDR and mm. cognitive processing mm-hmm. and existential therapy and just tr- general mm-hmm. trauma recovery in terms of meaning making and this kind of thing are the way to go. Anyway. Uh, so, the th- the first thing I'll say, anonymous patron, is that you're not alone. Uh, you're you're kind of a rare case. You're not a, an only case, but you're a rare case in that in the category I'm about to describe. Of uh, so, there's a broader category of people who therapy is the trigger mm-hmm. that therapy actually does trigger their traumas. Now, for you, you were traumatized by a treatment center, a psychiatric hospital. So so your thera- your trauma regard you know is regarding that but there's a lot of people who are traumatized by their parents and when they go to therapy the therapeutic relationship feels kind of like a parental relationship and thus triggers them mm-hmm. so it's a very common thing that therapy is both the trigger and the cure hmm. so it's you're not you're not in an unknown territory to a you know, competent therapist you ask what what should you do uh, I recommend getting the treatment you deserve and following Bob's advice here. You mm-hmm. ask, um, how do therapists approach people who have been traumatized or abused by therapeutic centers or psychiatric hospitals? It's the same as any other trauma, as, as Bob was saying. Um, you uh, need to habituate to the memories of it. Right now, those traumas are plaguing you. And in the same way that you know, in a simple trauma, say you're in a car accident and you almost die mm-hmm. –
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, six months later, you might, when you're driving down the road, you might have a panic attack because your trauma is being triggered. And the treatment protocol is that you slowly habituate to the stimulus, which is habituating to, to driving, which is complicated as emotional regulation mm-hmm. elements that are very important. There's exposure elements which need to be gradual and at your pace. There needs to be. Cognitive reprogramming about what the dangers really are and all those kinds of things, and so mm. there, there's and post-traumatic growth and all these kinds of things. So uh, the the trauma you just because you've been traumatized by therapy doesn't change the treatment protocol at all. Mm-mm. You say, I'm worried they will be skeptical of my story or side with the treatment center. And as Bob said, yeah, it's possible there are a holes out there, and some of them are <laughs> some of them are therapists. But if you find a good one, they will likely believe you. And to be honest, treatment centers don't have the best reputation. So I, 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 I probably will imagine that most therapists will, will just be biased in such a way that they will believe you regardless. <laughs> um, you know, treatment centers in our society don't have a very good reputation. And I would say
1: among clinicians. I mean, would you say that's true, Bob? Yes, yeah. I say that a little. Um, I know people that work at treatment centers that I believe are very good therapists. And so I I don't want to disparage them. But, yeah, in general, I'd say, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that there are some factors that play into that. One is, is that the centers are treating very, very difficult clients mm-hmm. that are going to be uh, difficult to treat. You know, mm-hmm. Su- extreme suicidality, extreme harm, extreme symptomology. And so... There is, you know, it's sort of like child protective services or Department of Social Health Services in Washington and around. They often have this terrible reputation, but Mm -hmm. I've worked very closely with these people and know that they're very competent. They're very caring individuals. The problem is, is that they are dealing with the worst, literally the worst cases uh, of children, wealth, child welfare and family issues in whatever town that they're in. And so there's going to be – if anyone's going to, say, have a child that is harmed by the system or by their family and no one really helped, CPS is going to be involved in all likelihood anyway. And so uh, treatment centers are similar to that. The other thing is is that working at a treatment center because of taxes or insurance reimbursement, they're not the best jobs. They don't Mm -hmm. pay very well. They're high stress. The people are overworked. You can literally be physically assaulted in these places. They will hire orderlies or even therapists that are big just for that reason. Mm-hmm. And they tend to have a pretty high turnover. You're not going to find a lot of people that are going to say, I want to work in one of these places and I, and I want to retire here. There's not a lot of people that are going to say that. And so you're going to have burnt out, uh, inexperienced clinicians at these sorts of places, generally speaking. Anyway. You also uh ask here, and if I get myself to an appointment, how should I address this with my therapist, as Bob says, you know, just tell him uh, if someone told me I'd believe him, yeah. and I'd be like, "Okay, you know we know what we need to do here. you have your trauma, and you we I know how to treat trauma, and so let's it doesn't really matter what it was that you got traumatized by." Worst case scenario, as Bob was saying, they don't believe you. And then you just fire them. (laughs) And that will be therapeutic in and of itself, that Mm -hmm. you have the agency to be like, now I'm an adult and no one can do this to me. Mm -hmm. I'll be very clear. The only scenario that they would have the power to take away your agency would be is if you exhibited extreme danger to self or others, meaning that you are imminently in danger of killing yourself or killing someone else. Mm -hmm. So if you're anything short of that, then – the th- The therapist, one doesn't have any power, and two mm-hmm. wouldn't want to ex- exert any kind of power over you. Mm-hmm. And even if in the rare circumstance that they did exert that power because you were at a you know danger to yourself and others, and it's a good thing that they exert power over that, the power is temporary mm-hmm. at the at the longest, it would be three to seven days depending. and and the way out of it is just to reassure people that, You're not going to hurt anyone, and and if you are going to hurt someone, then it's a good idea that your power is taken away. But those are extremely rare circumstances, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and and to be clear, say a therapist has a very bad gauge of that, and the therapist is like, oh, you're suicidal. and Well, they have to call a professional, Mm -hmm. and those professionals come in Mm -hmm. to evaluate you. Mm -hmm. Those people know what's up, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they tend to err on the side of not Mm-hmm. Uh, forcing people into hospitalization, you'd be surprised the how high of a level mm-hmm. of like you know someone saying I might uh, harm myself, and you call the MHPs. The MHPs show up and they say, "Well, are you going to hurt yourself today?" Mm-hmm. And the person, the client's like, "Ah, no, I don't think so." And then a lot of times they're like, "Well, you're not in imminent danger then, so there's yeah. no there's no reason to force you." cuz you know our society is very freedom oriented for better or for worse and this is one of the good sides of it i guess in that it's it's you know citizens have rights and so yeah. this 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 plays a role in that too Well it now, comes
1: out of the civil rights movement right yeah. where the the used to be docs could any doc could have somebody committed Yeah um and we've said no we that's not cool people do have rights and, um, they're only under certain circumstances. So I think we've gotten just tighter about what are the reasons for this and do, how do we balance that with, you know, the fact that people ought to be free to walk around on the planet Yeah, wearing a mask these days, of course, but, um, <laughs> yeah, anyways. It, yeah. And so, uh,
0: the difference was in the past when you were 13, You are a child, Mm -hmm. and we do not give children power in Mm -hmm. our society, pros and cons of that. All right, Mm -hmm. next email. Let's rock it through. Rock it. Patron Christine from Maine says, I'm an addiction therapist with a robust private practice in Portland, Maine. Mm -hmm. I've been in recovery myself for 12 years. Mm. I offer individual and group therapy and recently added couples to my repertoire. Mm-hmm. My countertransference has been nagging at me more than usual over the last year. So I've increased my consultation supervision and your podcast has been a huge part of this journey, the attachment deep dives in particular. Mm-hmm. I would love to get more information about my client's attachment injuries being predominantly healed through our relationship. For clients in a lot of pain and suffering, is there something I can offer them besides a stable, consistent, compassionate relationship? My pattern is to consider more skilled, quote unquote, more skilled clinicians for my clients who are in the most pain. I've gone so far to make referrals for IFS or EMDR, which of course kicks up their abandonment issues. And sometimes they end up coming back saying they didn't feel comfortable with those other providers. I'm wondering now if my choice to refer out is evidence of my attachment injuries. I'm eager to get more info about offering secure attachment within therapeutic relationship. Bob, what do you think?
1: I think you should talk about this with your consultant. Yeah, and explore what is sending me. It might be that you discover that making these referrals is a good choice, and it might be that you discover that there's something going on for you. I I just re- just hearing this email, it made me think. Oh, I wonder if something's going on for this person that they're that they're referring out. Are they? Is it a confidence thing? Mm-hmm. Is it a fear of connection thing? Is it? you know, is, is something. I mean, what do I know? It's just one letter, uh, yeah. one email. But um, I would do that. I would talk with a consultant about it and explore what actually happens inside me that leads me to this choice.
0: Yeah, it's a very common counter-transference that I talk about almost daily with my trainees, specifically inadequacy, you know, imposter syndrome, whatever. And then the therapist will refer out or have an impulse to refer out. And the uh, lack of awareness will lead to the therapist thinking it's a good clinical choice when in reality it's not. Now, mm-hmm. referring out is sometimes a good choice, but I find mm-hmm. that therapists are way too quick to refer out for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. this and others. Um, and IFS, EMDR, you know, it, it it, anyway, point is is that it's a very it's it's almost universal to novice therapists, particularly when you're heading into a new area, as you are, patron Christine, heading into couples therapy. Couples therapy has the most countertransference of all time, <laughs> by far.
1: Does Does Christine want to treat these patients? Is a really important question too, right?
0: So if you want that, because I always ask my trainees that as well. I just asked mm-hmm. a trainee yesterday that I was like. Is this a client you want to work with? Mm -hmm. And these are all important things. But getting to what Bob said, I might amp it up a little bit. Consultation is great, but really what you're looking for is mentorship. Mm -hmm. I do this all week long for my mentees. I don't just provide consultation, which is important. But mentorship is really the key because when you feel inadequate, you need someone to tell you that you're not inadequate. (laughs) And you need to have trust in that person that – That they're right, because uh, there's a general feeling of I'm not, quote unquote, skilled enough. And a big thing that I do with my mentees is is I I will very pointedly with evidence point out that they are skilled enough Mm -hmm. and that I have been monitoring that because as a supervisor, it's my job. And then I reflect back. No, the notions running through your mind are irrational uh, you are skilled enough. Let me lay out how you are. I just had a conversation a couple weeks ago with a mentee like this. I was like, because she felt in the face with a, of a borderline client, she felt very inadequate and and as if she, you know, I think the client had blown out of therapy, and the the therapist felt very inadequate and as if she maybe she, maybe she should even quit being a therapist altogether. And I told her that given her. Approach given her sensitivities, given her knowledge, uh, the f- the things she was saying was in the possibly the top one percent of all therapists regarding the treatment of borderline. the The treatment of borderline is very difficult, and most therapists have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> in my in my experience, so the fact that uh, she was saying all the right things and um, had the right approach, and yet still you know, just didn't provide the service that the client really wanted, uh, you know, it's, it's just par for the course. If, if you specialize in treating personality disorders, it's just going to happen. And, and, and that's okay. So having a mentor that really works with you sifts through those things, one by providing consultation, but two, by just making you feel like you're worth it. Like you do know what you're doing. Um, the other thing I'll say is um, for clients in a in a lot of pain and suffering. Um, oh no, you asked this question. Sorry, you ask anonymous pat- or patron Christine. You mm-hmm. ask for clients in a lot of pain and suffering. Is there something I can offer them besides a stable, consistent, compassionate relationship? the The answer is yes, sort of. One is is a, a stable, consistent, compassionate relationship. Is one of the best things anyone can receive. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, that's a, that can alleviate a lot of pain and suffering. But if we want to be more sort of comprehensive, what we're talking about is the relationship. And there are many components to the relationship, evidence meaning, you know, the, the, the ev- there's a lot of different areas. So there's one in the working alliance, which is bond, task, and goals you have repairing alliance ruptures. you have goal consensus, you have collaboration, you have empathy, you have positive regard, you have approach to resistance, you have feedback, you have use of self-disclosure and you have management of counter transference. Those areas are the are what evidence shows if you pay attention to it enhances the overall relationship which enhances outcomes and can reduce a lot of pain and suffering in clients over time. They internalize that. That attachment, that security, and they earn security, and their symptoms likely will go down. Um, So again, it's alliance, repairing alliance ruptures, goal consensus, collaboration, empathy, positive regard, approach to resistance, feedback, meaning eliciting feedback from your client, using self-disclosure effectively, and management of your kind of transference. And so uh, if you do those things, then... Um you're, not, you are providing a, you're providing a stable, consistent, compassionate relationship, but you're also kind of coming at it from a lot of different angles. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what theory is this? Well, some people will call it humanistic therapy. Some people will call it interpersonal or psychodynamic therapy. Some people call it an attachment-based therapy. There's lots of different labels for it, but those are the different areas. Um, but here's another thing that I think you're asking in the question is that I hear a lot from trainees is, well, you know, they'll say like, "Well, I feel like I'm just listening," <laughs> and it drives me crazy because I, I don't understand. I, I guess I get kind of—we're taught that listening is bad, or that mm. therapists are supposed to tinker, that good clinicians interpret, you know, brilliantly, or they they tinker brilliantly. And there's not a lot of, uh, you know, greats in therapy demonstrating therapy where the therapist doesn't do anything. <laughs> Visibly, you know what I Mm -hmm. mean? Um, Aside from, I guess, Carl Rogers. But um, so one, yes, just listening. If that's all you ever do, you are going to serve so many clients. The other thing is, it's not just listening. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenological. It's intentional. It's validating. It's corrective. It's true compassion. It's authentic. Mm -hmm. So, you're not just casually listening the way you would casually listen to like someone at work tell tell you about their weekend and the and the boring dream they had last night you know that's that's <laughs> casual listening therapeutic listening is way beyond casual listening and very healing and what i tell people is you could learn nothing about technique mm-hmm. if you learn everything about the relationship, and how to listen well yes. from your heart, you could heal the world. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do anything beyond that. You can do things beyond that. I do things beyond that. Bob does things beyond that. But you don't have to. That's the foundation of the whole thing. And honestly, when I go to therapy, that's all I want. Mm-hmm. I I notice sometimes when a therapist is trying to do something, and oh. I and I don't like it. I'm like, you know, I get... I get that you're trying to do something right now, but I just want someone to understand me.
1: Mm -hmm. So can you go back to that? (laughs) That happened to me last week. Really? I'm sitting with this couple and I don't remember what was said, but the wife said something and I started being a therapist. Right. And I, I blew past what she said and I was offering some interpretation or whatever. And I watched her face and she wasn't buying it. And I said to her, you know what? Sometimes I'm trying to be a good therapist. And I forget. <laughs> Sorry. Can you give me a do-over? And okay. she said, yeah. And I said, you said this. Great. And That's what you meant. And she, her face changed. She felt heard. She was heard. She felt cared about. She was cared about. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard the same thing in this email, that just listening. You know, last time we were together, Kirk, you and me, we talked about listening. And after it was over, Colleen said to me, you you could do several episodes on on listening, because there is so much more to it than just you know um casual listening as you were describing it, there's a lot to it,
0: yeah, and the, really. and the best
1: ones do they they are really good at it yeah yeah yeah
0: it, it it's a skill and it, is. It, it a skill it's a it's a wisdom uh-huh it's a um a life orientation uh-huh There's so many things, and for many of us, we never had that modeled for us, or Uh we've never done it, Uh really. Uh Um, And
1: uh, yeah, it's not a passive activity. No, I think that's what they mean when they say just listening. They think they're sitting there being passive. Real listening is not passive at all. Yeah, you're you're. It's like you're in the trenches with the person, or you come up right alongside them. That kind of attention, oh, it's lovely. Yeah. 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 Mhm.
0: Yeah. I mean one of the things that I think about humans is that if we could get 2 minutes a day of just <laughs> of just really good listening. Mm. You know, someone hearing us mm-hmm. for 2 minutes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know we wouldn't have any problems. <laughs> <laughs> now, when we're young, we probably need more than two minutes. But as adults, I think we don't really need much more than that. Mm. And and I say that because often there's this concern of just like, well, geez, it takes so much effort to listen. And, mm. and it's like, I, I don't want to burden other people. And mm. you don't need that much time. Mm-hmm. You, you know, You just, uh, two minutes a day, someone just really hearing you and really seeing you, and you just really get that sense like, wow, you know, that person really gets me. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that's that's all we need. Of mm-hmm. course, more than that would be great. Mm-hmm. All right, let's rock it through one more. All right, let's do another. Uh, Upper Tier Patron Esty writes, Bob, I heard you talk about your 31 years in therapy and how you uh, still have some fears and struggles yeah. after three decades. Mm. I have been in therapy for 10 years. Mm. I also have extreme childhood abuse and likely disorganized attachment. Mm -hmm. I have started with a new therapist who I think is who I need right now. Mm. She has 40 years of experience and was even a professor at the University of Washington. But we are working on stuff I've worked on before, things like safety, connection, and self-care. I feel like I am just starting over again. Do you ever run into that feeling or the frustration with yourself that you aren't further or
1: better? Bob, what do you think? I never feel like that. Um... Starting over. I don't think I've had the feeling of starting over. I probably—I was thinking about this the other day. I think I've had somewhere between five and 12 therapists. Most of them okay. A couple of them great. Some of them not so. Um, And I've never felt like I was starting over. I think because I value so much when I get somebody's attention and I think that they actually want to give it. So I don't feel that way. Um, In terms of working with the same stuff... I say I've been in therapy for 31 years, and that is largely true. And one of the things I've discovered most recently is that what I used to do in therapy, what I thought was therapeutic, actually was um, spinning my wheels. And uh, the thing I like about my therapist now is he constantly brings our attention back to what's happening between us, no matter what I'm talking about. I could be talking about Colleen or work or whatever, Um uh, but he constantly brings it back to what's happening between us, what is the experience. And what I've discovered is that every time anybody opens their mouth, they want something. And most of the time, we do not want to be explicit about it. And being explicit about what we want as soon as we open our mouths is scary. Meaning that every time you open your mouth, like you're
0: just going to talk about something at work, uh-huh. you're you're asking for him uh-huh. to care or hear uh-huh. you.
1: or uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, validate me or um, kvetch with me, if that's what it is. <laughs> right. But I've discovered that the expectation or and or the desire for that to happen wants to go unspoken and um, hide out in the shadows. And so what I used to think was good, good therapy, I think was um, mindless. Um, exploration into something that isn't in the present moment, which is, you know, me and in my case, Jordan sitting across from one another or now sitting across screen from one another um, talking about what happens between us and the co- the conversations that we have that are about what happens between us, whatever the topic might be, are um, scarier and more fulfilling. And I I don't know, maybe I wasn't ready before that. Maybe I wasn't ready to, to kind of have that kind of focus. And maybe in 10 years, if I'm still working with him or if I'm working with somebody else, I'll have a different focus. Maybe um, growth is like that. And maybe, um, I I don't know what uh, your situation is, Esty, yeah, Esty, I'm mm-hmm. getting it right. I don't know what your situation is, but, um, you know, uh, because of all the work and particularly the work of the last five years and because of my experience of talking with Kirk on the podcast I've let go of um, a notion that I used to have about um, not being uh, not having problems really yeah I think I just expect that I'm going to have problems and I don't love it and it doesn't it's not a license to be lazy um. there's value in chipping away, even if I never reach, I, I couldn't even name what it is, but whatever high peak it is that uh, I have told myself that I will reach, I probably won't.
0: Well, so obviously therapy and your own personal work has led you to that place, but what about the podcast has led you to that place?
1: Oh, you keep saying it. You're like, Bob, maybe the best Bob can hope for is to move from disorganized to preoccupied. And is that a bad thing? No. Right? Um, So what it's led me to do is to be more realistic about um, what my goals are and what my, um, God, I hate this word, prognosis is. Um, That's such a crap word. That's a clinical word. Um, Potential. That's a better word. What my potential is. It doesn't have to be um, whatever people tell themselves, whatever I have told myself that Buddha on the mountain is. It doesn't have to be that to be valuable and worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I remember for many years, even after I became a therapist, there was this notion rattling around in my head that if I got the right therapy and enough of it, Mm -hmm. I would never suffer again. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. I would never make a mistake. I would Uh never misinterpret someone. I would Mm -hmm. never be triggered. I would Mm -hmm. never overreact. Mm -hmm. I would never beat myself up. Mm -hmm. I would never regret anything. And if you asked me that at the time, I would have been like, well, that's a little absurd. But I know deep down that's how I felt. I know that I thought that if I just got the right sort of therapy or or I did the right kind of self-care regimen or something, you know, mindfulness or something, that – I would never do a stupid thing again. I would Mm. never hurt anyone on accident or on purpose. And everything would be better.
1: I think the desire in that says more about where
0: you're at than the actual goal. And this misinformation, I think, that is just propagated subtly through our society that that that
1: is possible and attainable. Uh (laughs) That's my beef about movies these days. Yeah. Is they end at the beginning. They don't end at the end. Right. They end at the beginning and then we don't know what the hell to do with that. So like right. the superhero movies, yeah. they're origin stories. Those are the ones that are most interesting. But that's just one part. Well even rom coms,
0: like uh Silver- Exactly. Silverlining's playbook, uh yeah. we have two people we have someone with bipolar and uh-huh. I think someone with borderline. I think they're mm. trying to portray borderline. Mm. And they have all these symptoms and they have mm-hmm. all these problems and mm-hmm. they do this dance routine at the end and mm-hmm. they uh, love each other.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
0: and every everyone watching the movie is like, oh, that's great. I'm thinking mm-hmm. their problems have just begun. Just begun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like uh, unless they get a lot of treatment, mm-hmm. uh, this isn't probably going to even work. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that it ended well after mm-hmm. they danced together, it, that doesn't mean anything. You know, it's just a...
1: A temporary a nice moment between mm-hmm. these two people, you know. So, and God love them. It's great that they can have a nice moment. That bodes well. But yeah. that ain't. But but that's part of the the yeah.
0: misinformation that gets right. around of just it like is. if I can just have a breakthrough or this sort mm-hmm. of sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, and I don't know when I gave that up. I think it was recently, actually, maybe in the past five years, mm-hmm. and maybe it was part of the podcast too, of just like. You know, doing this podcast allows me a lot of time to mull things over and really think about things and hear from other people and and just really think about it. And and I guess talking to you as well Mm. and just how the reality of humans and the reality of life just changes one's paradigm. And I I, I don't think I noticed when that paradigm shifted for me, but it did. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. How do we do with Esty's question? Because, you know, I get going and I actually can lose
0: the thread. Right. I wanted to get back to that just to make sure. So she's asking – she feels like she's going over the same stuff. So there's two possibilities that I would say, Esty, Mm -hmm. and I would talk with your therapist about this, obviously. Mm -hmm. Is on one level, you might not – you might be doing good work. You might be actually doing good therapy. And it just feels like you're going over the same stuff because – you're frustrated with the fact that you're, you're not moving as fast as you wish they were. Mm-hmm. You know, as Bob was saying earlier, he has accepted radical acceptance of his traumas and the way it affects him. And he doesn't have uh, an unrealistic idea of his potential in terms of healing. He, he doesn't think, well, with enough therapy, I'm going to be completely secure and I'm never going to have another – sort of trauma react reaction in life. Uh, Bob doesn't think that at all about himself, and, and yet he still goes, and it does help. It's incremental. It's, it's better than if he didn't go to therapy. Right? It is
1: better than if I didn't
0: go for sure. Right. So there's a possibility that you're just feeling that. The other possibility is that you and the therapist are kind of stagnant mm-hmm. in a particular rut that isn't helpful to you. And, mm-hmm. and, and you're, you're thinking about it, and you're just like, I feel like we're just kind of going over you know, stuff I've already gone over before with mm-hmm. other therapists, by all means, tell your therapist this. Mm-hmm. I've had occasional clients tell me this, or I've thought it myself more, more likely. And I bring it up as the therapist. And it's a wonderful opportunity to talk about it, just be like, mm-hmm. yeah, well, what else can we do? Because there's so mm-hmm. m- there's thousands of, <laughs> of paths you can take. And Therapeutic relationships tend to gravitate towards particular paths, particularly in long-term therapy. And it's a great opportunity to say, you know what? Mm-hmm. Let's think about what paths we're avoiding mm-hmm. as the two of us. Mm. What are we afraid of? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are the possibilities that we aren't taking? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's think about that. It's in long-term therapy, it is essential that every now and then you do that. Because if mm-hmm. you don't – I mean, mm-hmm. at the very least, therapists should think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you should always, as a therapist, be thinking about, okay, what what are areas that I'm avoiding? And that's where consultation comes in because mm-hmm. when you in, – in, in a lot of ways, it's too much for one therapist to evaluate. You have to bounce it off someone else, and the other therapist will say, like, well, it sounds to me like – you're avoiding this path, or mm-hmm. wh- or why have you not gone down this road, or have mm-hmm. you gone down this road? Mm-hmm. And then the therapist is like, "Oh yeah, wow," because mm-hmm. you know we're we're not computers; we're mushy, you know, biological goo things, mm-hmm. and we don't have logic on our side all the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> or objectivity, I should say. Anyway, what's the final word on today's episode,
1: Bob? This was fun. I don't know if I have anything more than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, uh, I again, I, I feel very appreciative of folks who write in and ask these interesting and thoughtful questions.
0: Yeah, yeah. So thank you, SD and Christine and the anonymous people for writing in. Did we yeah. do four? We did. I think we did. See, one, two, three, and we did four. Yeah. Oh. So. Right. I was hoping to get to, you know, 15, but yeah, 4 is not too bad. Anyway, anyway, everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs>